Welcome to episode 404 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. We're lawyers talking technology, security, privacy, and government, and the views we're about to express here uh, do not reflect the opinions of our institutions, our clients, our families, our friends, maybe not even ours three weeks from today. Yeah, I was reminded of this and I went to a, a meeting talking about surveillance capitalism with one of my grandchildren and somebody said, is this one of the members of your family whose views you do not represent? And uh, my grandson said, yes. <laughs> so I, uh, joining me for their news roundup, Megan Stiefel, Chief Strategy Officer at the Institute for Security and Technology, Sultan Meji, uh, who's a scholar at the Cyber Policy Initiative of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, Jamil Jaffer, founder and executive director of the National Security Institute, and a hundred other things. And I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, host and chief provocateur for today's program. There were a lot of stories this week about cyber war and Ukraine, and I would say that I didn't learn anything from any of them. It was the same thing we've been hearing for the last two or three weeks. Get ready. Bad things could happen. The Russians could attack. It could be ugly. But right now, Megan, I'm not seeing something that indicates the Russians have a lot of extra time on their hands to come attack us. They're busily defending and attacking in Ukraine. And that's also a theme of some of the stories that came out this year, this week. Yes, more of the same, I think, largely. The, well, the one thing I will say that I did learn as new is that we continue to have uh, better ability to collaborate with our Five Eyes partners. So that lengthy, I think it's like 20-something pages alert that CISA put together that's kind of co-branded with the UK, Australia, Canada, oh, all of them, and New Zealand. I will give you know extra news to that one. But otherwise, yes, we know that the Russians are targeting Ukrainian infrastructure. They have been for some time. What's new there? Do they have the ability then to still come after us? Well... There's the whole Revil thing that we actually didn't, I don't think, put a story in of is Revil now going to just take the gloves back off? But again, do they want to do that, really? I don't know. Yeah. Um, and, and, and do our friends in industry, I think I can say as a co-chair of the Ransomware Task Force, that uh, I think industry is in, in pretty good shape and, and has a good sense of not to say that it's perfect and that nothing will happen. But I think a lot has been learned over the past eight months on this stuff. And so I don't foresee horrible things. And I will probably eat my words sometime soon. But Sometime, uh, you know, you don't get to episode 404 without eating a few of your words. At least uh, I certainly haven't. Um, Is this the point, though, Stuart, where we make jokes about 404? I get, you're right. We made a joke uh, last week, I think, about 420, about trying to get Elon Musk to come on the program for 420. And uh, you're right. This is If you put this into your Google search bar, you may be surprised at what you get. And for that, I guess I apologize. But as we're getting ready for this uh, uh, Russian attack that hasn't come yet, one of the questions that is bothering folks on the Hill and sort of bothers me is that uh, cloud service providers have been excluded from critical infrastructure that gets a lot of attention and a special, I won't call it regulatory, but special responsibilities in the eyes of the government. Because back in 2014, when the concept of critical infrastructure with special responsibilities was identified, consumer internet products, including the cloud providers, were deliberately excluded. And Congress is talking about passing legislation to put them in, uh, really uh, at the recommendation of the Cyber Sol uh, Solarium Commission. Uh, Sultan, what are the prospects for this? And what's the justification 
for having excluded them. Well, I, I mean, is this where I jump in and immediately start talking about the inmates running the asylum? Because, you know, one of the things I think most people don't get is, while well, the Salarium Commission recommended this, the federal regulatory bureaucracies and a lot of the lawyers and a lot of the agencies have been beating the drum for this ever since 2014. You know, you see it in the financial regulatory community, you see it in the telco, you see it in commerce. And, you know, fundamentally, what we have is a regulatory system that focuses on trying to regulate a very small number of very large entities very significantly to try to have a maximized impact. And so there are a lot of agencies really pushing for this. And the Slurring Commission, I think, just picked that up. The fact is, it's already happening in certain circles, certainly within the financial regulatory community. This exists already, certainly within some of the telecommunications activity that this works already. I think the sissy thing is going to be a tough sell for a lot of people. I know there was supposed bipartisan support, but there's a heck of a lot of difference from a, you know, a, a blue ribbon commission agreeing on something and it actually being, you know, systematized. Yeah, the the Republican support for this is, I, I think, thin is the nicest possible word for it. <laughs> I, I was going to say soft, but yeah, I, I can't I can't see this uh, being being a big push. And here's where I pause and let and let uh, Jaffer throw in a sarcastic comment. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> okay, actually, Megan was there. Were you there when Section Nine was gelded in this way? Was I there? Yes. Was I engaged in this? No. Okay. I was too busy giving away the internet to Russia and China. Don't you remember, Stuart? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yes, that, and it's thanks to that that we can't get .su off the internet because uh, ICANN doesn't care we what we think. We couldn't have anymore. done it before then, anyways. Remember? Well, That's yeah, the that, that that was that was the theory. I I, I agree. So I, it, this was you know a year after the fuss over Snowden. So the U.S. doing anything with cloud providers was probably pretty controversial. But was that it? Or was this uh, a tribute to the clout that Google and Amazon had in the Obama administration? I mean, it's hard not to see a, a line there. I mean, you also need to add in some of the activities the EU has done recently and a lot of the kind of collective hand-waving and chicken with head screaming around solar winds and log4j that's happened since then, right? There's this notion that we have a very small number of people trying to manage this inside of the federal system, and they can't go after the 47,000 different technology providers that sit underneath them. And so they've got to figure out a way to, to force multiply their ability to manage this, or at least move the accountability of, of when the next thing happens, because we all know it will. It probably is happening while we're on this podcast. Yep. Uh, if, my phone, if my phone lighting up right now is, is making any noise, I apologize because it's doing something and I'm trying not to look at it. Could also just be a kid needing, you know, pickup from school. But it's, you know, we're in a situation where the federal bureaucracy has resource set A. And I was, it was highlighted today to me that the SEC has the same number of employees it did in 1996, but you know, not like the markets have gotten bigger since 1996, right? We have a certain amount of resources over here. And the fact is, is there's orders of magnitude more technology that have to be managed and the internal systems aren't set up for this. And so until there is some something far more strategic coming out of Congress, I, I can't see this actually being positively meaningful. Well, so why does Congress have to do it? There is an executive order. It does identify Section 9 entities that are particularly of concern. And it, it used to have, it has this exclusion in it, but the president, if, if Trump had been paying attention, he could have uh, gotten rid of it. This administration could get rid of that and just say, yeah, cloud providers, you're on the hook too. Yeah, I mean, you've got two challenges here. One, first is I think you would still have independent agencies and a variety of gaps in the legislative framework that Section 9 mm -hmm. doesn't cover. 
and Megan is, and you and Megan are way better equipped to talk about that than I am. But then the others, I, I, I'm just going to throw in stuff at Megan just because I first time I'm on with her. So it's going to be fun. The, the second is, I think we also should recognize that while a lot of people talk about the tech influence in the Obama administration, it would be hard not to see the tech influence in revolving door, you know, more recently than the Obama administration that probably also has a bit of a, uh, an impact here. Okay. One question I have portraying the fact that it's been almost 10 years since I've actually practiced law and actually had to study uh, Title III and some of the other pieces, but is there potentially not the need for a notwithstanding somewhere to enable some of this? And is that partially why we don't have the president being able to sort of with a pen, which I don't think we want, saying, ah, forget the Wiretap Act and all these other things. It's okay. We'll put... Yeah, you may be right that there was a prudential exclusion there to avoid legal issues. I I think the whole Section 9 thing is, I won't call it a house of cards, but it's a little rickety. Well, I think this is the challenge, right? I think the last thing most people in the executive branch want is any sort of legal challenge to that, because I don't think, I think a lot of people don't think it's going to hold muster. Yep. All right. What about this Buy America provision in the infrastructure bill? I thought at first this was going to be an interesting supply chain argument, but it looks as though it's just a standard. The unions would like to make sure that they get the labor benefits of the construction and they want all the construction materials to also come be sourced in the United States. So it's just a, it's a tweak on Buy American. Is that right? It it is. I think it is, but we can't, you also should probably highlight here that like the, the exclusions and the way to get around it, create yet another bottleneck in any sort of execution that's actually meaningful to the average American. And the cost provision amount is dangerously close to what three years of inflation look like if it doesn't change. So, you know, I don't know if it necessarily changes a lot for any of these big infrastructure projects. Maybe more interesting from a supply chain point of view is Ukrainian complaints that uh, the Chinese drones that they get are, or at least their drone defense systems that they're getting from the Chinese firm DJI, aren't working very well for them, but are working well for the Russians. It all sounds a little uncertain or like it could be user perception rather than the truth. But in this case... The user perception sounds like it's pretty plausible, Megan. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, the other thing about DJI, I mean, for all that, I think we talk about DJI every second or third time I'm on this, appropriately so, because of its ownership structure. But the DJI platform is so cloud-linked that if you have kind of intermittent network connectivity issues, you get issues with the systems, right? Fair enough. So, so if you were in a situation where, you know, Ukrainian internet access is downgraded, it wouldn't surprise me at all if some of the DJI technology doesn't work very well. That, that makes sense. And, and it looks as though the, the, the U.S. stuff that they're buying, which is much more expensive, is more expensive in part because it actually uh, uses a variety of other navigation tools other than uh, line of sight. Uh, and that makes them a little more resistant to, to defense. All right. Well, yeah, I do want to weigh in on this DJI thing because, you know, I, I do have a beef here with this sort of American consumer, you know, view on DJI, which is, you know, everybody, their mom is buying DJI drones at the corner store, you know, for their kids. It's the most popular platform out there. We see law enforcement and, and, and first responders using this. This is a company, by the way, that we've seen video, of their drones surveilling Uyghurs being brought to concentration camps in the Xinjiang province, right? We now, we now have the Ukrainian vice foreign minister saying that those drones are being used to kill Ukrainians by the Russians using them to target activities. Now, to be sure, 
He's also got his own set of his own set of drones, you know, in his in his thing. But he's very concerned about this. And so, you know, I think it's time for the American people um, to start thinking about the way we spend our money, the way our local our local governments, you know, at least DOD has stopped buying DJI drones. Right. And stop buying Huawei phones. But you have Americans who are going abroad at duty free, buying Huawei phones, buying DJI drones for their kids. But right? this needs to stop. I mean, it, you know, we keep seeing all of our companies pulling out of Russia and the like. Yet we won't take any action, consumer action, right, much less government action, you know, um, against these Chinese uh, manufacturers supporting the Russian efforts in Ukraine, but are also, you know, doing bad things to their own people, whether it's about Hong Kong or about, about the Uyghurs. I mean, at some point, the American people and our local governments have got to step up and say, enough is enough. We're not going to buy this stuff anymore. Right. We're going to take action, you know, but our, but, you know, but frankly, take action where our flags are today. Right. Plenty of people got the Ukrainian flags up outside their houses are still buying Huawei phones at duty free. They can't buy them in the U.S. anymore, thank God. And DJI drones at the local Toys, well, I guess Toys R Us is closed, whatever, Target. Name your name your vendor of choice. I, I'm old enough to remember Toys R Us. Yeah, look, if you want American consumers not to buy something by appealing to patriotism, the price difference needs to be less than 10 or 15%. And DJI is really uh, good. And, and their competitors are just not in the same category it it's yeah. so weird how a chinese company is able to offer dramatically lower price lower prices in the american market oh Huawei never did that it's so weird how that happens you know, that. Oh, it might be never those might be those amazing loans they get from the chinese government or that cash support they get it's so weird how that happens where did the ip to develop this thing come from oh yeah Ooh. huh wonder it probably i'm sure it was developed natively in china not stolen from the u.s like the other trillions of dollars of ip not stolen a chance from us. Okay. Uh, well, uh, let's let's take the national security debate to Capitol Hill. A bunch of former security officials complained about the antitrust law that uh, or bills that are moving through the judiciary committees uh, because they thought they were going to be bad for U.S. national security. They've been attacked almost immediately by people who say these are folks who all have their uh, hands in Silicon Valley's pocket. <clears throat> I think one of the ways that they said one of the people had his hand in Silicon Valley's pocket was that they served on the National Security Institute. And we all know what a uh, massive uh, contribution to our bottom lines that is. I, I, I think the entire board now have private jets, don't they? Well, you know, Stuart, if only that were the case, but it's funny, if that's the case, then everyone on this uh, podcast is bound up in that because Sultan and Megan are both fellows at NSI. You're on my advisory board. So, and by the way, I want to note, they only called out Sue Gordon for being on the NSI advisory board. At least, at least one of the other members, Leon Panetta, who signed that letter, is also on the NSI advisory board. Oh, and oh no, we know, you know, it's even more of a conspiracy because the other reason they think these national security experts are opposed to crazy antitrust bills that have no connection to actual antitrust law but are really all about political beefs that both conservatives and liberals have with these tech companies, right? And imagine, they didn't even call for these bills to be stopped. They just said they should have a national security review. Imagine that if we thought about national security in the context of trying to break up our most productive companies. But whatever, the other big beef is that, that they have this political article is, they're all, a, a lot of them are associated with Beacon Global. Guess what? So am I. It must be a conspiracy. People who actually think the same thing might come together in, in academic organizations and, de and debate issues, and they might actually find one another's companies useful and might work together in corporate studies. Imagine that. Imagine if Sultan and I were to go start a business together. Who would – there would be – the conspiracy theories would abound crazily. Oh, and then, of course, <laughs> I did work for Keith Alexander's company, so 
I must be just part of the whole surveillance industrial complex, so I'm just thrown away too. I mean, You've been Stuart, outed. Yep. the people who want to go after our technology companies, right? Look, there are legitimate beasts with our technology companies, no doubt, right? There are beasts on the conservative side, there are beasts on the liberal side. But as you and I have debated over and over again on this podcast, right, the question is whether we use our antitrust laws to go after them for non-antitrust conduct, right, and change our laws that, by the way, have worked, have worked phenomenally well at stopping you know, trusts and huge and, and, and massive corporations have been very effective at that, right? And now we just say, well, we're going to change the rules now because we just don't like the big tech companies. We don't like what they're doing to labor if you're on the left. We don't like what they're doing to conservative voices on the right. You know, Stuart, I know you're part of that mm-hmm. camp, right? But this idea somehow that the antitrust laws are the right way to go about this and that we should do it without even considering our national security is laughable. And imagine that a bipartisan group of national security experts might say that. I mean, strikes me as just common sense. You don't need to go looking in, oh, they're associated with some, you know, some firm that, that they claim, they don't even know for a fact they claim has ties to has ties to big tech, right? And then this think tank that, you know, we disclose our corporate donors, right? So yes, we got money from Amazon. Let me just tell you, they they say they're a major donor. I don't know how they got that because they don't know what my finances are, but let me tell you, major donor, probably not the right definition. Yeah, I am profoundly skeptical of uh, Silicon Valley. And I know they are working the national security issue as sort of their last line of defense on some of this antitrust stuff. So I was pretty skeptical. And there are some dumb arguments that they're making. Well, because we're so big and dominant, we can do a better job of protecting cybersecurity because we can see everything that's happening. That is an unpersuasive argument. But the idea that you'd write an antitrust bill that says you just have to shit your platform and let people on the platform for any reason, you know, if they meet some basic standards, means that you're encouraging and requiring American companies to let Chinese companies in, which do not have America's interest at heart and who will never return the favor. And so it does seem to me that this letter, which I was prepared to be cynical about, actually just says you ought to take into account the national security interests. And you could do that simply by saying, do all these things that we think are good for competition, but you can make a national security argument for why you shouldn't have to and allow that argument to play out. I think that would be that'd be good for national security because a lot of these companies, although they'll tell you all about the national security reasons to uh, prop them up, uh, really think of themselves as not quite located in the United States. Well, you know, Stuart, the, I, had a, I had an old boss who once said to me, when you get the answer you want, hang up the phone. So I'm just going to take the answer I want, take yes from Stuart Baker on this issue, I'm just going to hang up the phone. There is a lot to be said about these issues, and I'm happy to happy to engage on them. But, I mean, look, it, it, I agree with you, right? I mean, we should have a national security review. We should have uh, the ability to say, look, some of these things uh, do have national security implications. Stuart, I mean, you know that when it comes to scale, scale matters. Otherwise, there's no reason why the U.S. government wouldn't, you know, as we learned in the metadata context, right? I'm going to talk about only stuff that's unclassified, right? As we learn the metadata context, partners with big telecommunications companies because scale matters. The reason why we're so successful at what we do is because scale matters. And that's just as true in cyber as it is in telco on defense and on identifying threats. Now, are there other counter arguments? Sure. Do we want innovation? Of course. Is there real demonstrable proof that innovation has been crushed by our most innovative companies? I don't think so. I mean, to the contrary, you see these companies buying highly capable technology companies and integrating them, right? It's not like, it's not like, you know, Google bought, who's the uh, the maps writer that everyone loved that I hated because they had the little cartoon characters? 
Waze? Help me out here, guys. Waze. Thank yeah, you. Waze. Google bought Waze. And they're integrating Waze into Google Maps to make it better. You know how I know that? Because now I take these crazy routes to my house when I use Google Maps because it sends me down these weird rabbit holes, right? It, it is 38 seconds faster, but whatever. My point is the, the record is actually pretty substantive that these companies aren't engaging in the classic types of antitrust behavior that we thought were problematic. But of course, that's what all these people on the Hill agree with. They're like, oh yeah, they're not doing the traditional stuff. We need to go chase them for this other stuff that's never been a problem from an perspective that actually creates innovation. And we need to change the rules because now something has changed magically in our ecosystem, which is just not accurate. Yeah, I'm not on board for that, but I'm happy to postpone that in the interest of getting through this rather long episode, what I suspect will be a long episode. To, uh, and there's some really interesting stuff. There were some good articles about AI, two or three of them. Uh, one of them about China's plans for using AI to do intelligentized warfare that was in War on the Rocks. And I don't know, uh, Sultan, that one of the three we're looking at today struck me as promising a lot and delivering a lot less interesting yeah. stuff than I was ex uh, hoping for. Well, it's so funny. So this article started off so fantastically, right? It was basically talking about what seemingly is this massive maturation in artificial intelligence technology and offensive capabilities from the PRC, which is, you know, a great front end to any story because it gets all our heart rates going, right? And then towards you, once you get two thirds of the way through it, it turns out it's like, oh, we're automating some social engineering stuff and like de using the same technology Google uses to make sure I see the ads for the tequila I like versus the tequila I don't like. And that's it, right? It was a lot of sound and fury, not really getting a lot. The, the thing that I've actually found most interesting about it was this notion that they are fundamentally trying to imply that they have cognitive capabilities inside of their offensive AI infrastructure, which we have not seen any proof of. So, right. right. Yeah. I, I, look, I, I, I believe that the Chinese would I, uh, are much more interested in winning a war without fighting than, say, the Russians are, who really sort of get off on uh, artillery hitting civilian but, infrastructure. But perhaps the Russians should look to their sponsors for a strategic improvement there. Yeah, they, they clearly need it. But the idea that there there might be opportunities to really undermine the will of the Taiwan to uh, resist a, an invasion, if there's ever going to be an opportunity to do that, two countries that speak a common language and uh, understand each other as well as China and Taiwan are probably going to see that weapon used. But there was no real sign that they've perfected something that we uh, can't imagine. Uh, we're going to see it, but I don't know that uh, AI is necessarily going to deliver it for them. I mean, not in the grandiose ways that their, you know, whatever 10-year, 100-year plan would probably dictate. So, but this business about wrecking AI models, you know, basically putting backdoors and ways of defeating machine learning, I thought was really plausible. Because after all, if you can affect what the learning model is, then you're going to affect the results of the algorithm. Well, here is the thing that struck me in reading that. So I'm a college professor in my spare time. I teach artificial intelligence because I've been doing it for 30 years. And let me tell you, in the last few years, the number of times I have had graduate students from a certain country whose model looks really good and works really well for what they present. But then when they give me their code 
as they have to in order to get an A at the end of the semester and you rerun it and you get a different result, it certainly implies that there's a level of complexity inside of the models or inside of the libraries they're using that is that will fundamentally change the result. Right. And this is where, you know, I go, you know, deep in the computer science thing and talk about deterministic versus probabilistic outcomes. And any AI model still, we should be holding to a deterministic standard. Two plus two must also always equal four. And it can't be two plus two mostly equals four. Right. And it is absolutely clear that there's that, that this kind of weighting and this kind of activity is happening within the AI infrastructure. Yeah, so this is clearly, I would have thought, a big boost to the idea of people who say we have to be able to have AI that can explain how it arrives at, at, at its yeah. results. Well, and as we move out of this data-centric AI universe that we've been in for 30 years into a into an outcomes-oriented AI universe. So for those who aren't deep artificial intelligence experts, the biggest innovation in AI in the last three years has been the need to not need terabytes and terabytes of data to build a model. You can now build models much more lately with small, much smaller amounts of data. But we have not moved forward on building an ability to look at the models and make sure they give you the same result or test them. The, that modeling environment infrastructure doesn't exist yet. And it's leaving a big open hole for us, especially as we talk about using AI in national security or financial services use cases that have you know, pretty serious outcomes if they aren't done, if they aren't managed correctly. Okay, well, the MIT Technology Review says, well, what could possibly go wrong if we just get all of our uh, machine learning done in Venezuela by people who are effectively refugees in their own country or just outside their own country. It was a long, weepy article. Essentially, if I read it right, it was saying the people who need their labeling of a particular data set have figured out that you, if you can go someplace where smart people have been displaced by war or tragedy and sign them up for piecework, you can get a lot of high-quality work done pretty cheap. And Venezuela is the poster child for that. And I, I guess I came away thinking, you know, if you're a refugee, your opportunities to make money are really limited. And uh, this is probably better than anything else that's available because you can set it up overnight, practically. But... Uh, as they say, when enough people get into the business, uh, the value of those people goes down and so they're not getting paid a lot. I, I, I stopped reading about three quarters of the way through because it was just the same old thing. Oh, look at poor Juan. Don't you feel sorry for him? He used to have money and now he doesn't. Well, I, I, I found it hard to buy the idea that this was an abuse, but it is interesting about how mobile certain kinds of tech uh, enablement is. I mean, it's a critique of capitalism wrapped in a critique of, you know, American tech, right? Fundamentally, right? Yeah. And so, I mean, sure, there is capitalism the best, but no, it is, but it's, you know, paraphrasing Churchill, it's better than all the other crappy ones, right? So the fact is this article is trying to make a point that it gets lost in, which is that we are still at a moment where a lot of quote unquote artificial intelligence or tech that we use on a daily basis requires a low cost person to be doing something to make it work. And whether it's a call center that used to be in Phoenix that's now in the Philippines or tagging that used to happen in Silicon Valley and now it happens in Venezuela, there is continually going to be this pressure down on certain basic human tasks. And at some point, the technologies are going to evolve, just like we don't have people running around car factories anymore welding stuff mostly, right? It's robots doing it. That evolution is happening. And will there be displacement? Yeah, of course there will. Like that's, well, and then, that's and, not a new I'm thing, sure. right? 
I'm sure that MIT uh, Tech Review will then write an article about, look at these abusive uh, Silicon Valley companies who put all these people out of work. So it's six of one, half dozen of the other, I, I'm afraid. Yeah. Uh, okay. Can I, can I briefly talk about this Microsoft thing for just Yes. A yeah. So this makes no sense to me at all. Okay. This, 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 this is the complaint by the U.S. government that Microsoft has been charging premium rates for enabling its sophisticated, detailed log functioning. Yeah. I mean, it's ridiculous. Every single agency out there has an E5 Microsoft license and should have access to everything. And now all of a sudden they're getting nickel and dime for something that was technically inside of the license as a previous point, And they're just adding it on and saying, now you don't get it. Well, then all of a sudden now we have a security risk because they're not doing it. It's really frustrating me. It's like, I, you know, it's like when you buy a car and they're now telling you, you have to subscribe to a monthly service in order for your, your infotainment system to work or cruise control to work. Right. Yep. It's like Microsoft is learning the wrong lessons from the cloud business model, you know, MBA classes they should have all taken 15 years ago. And now we're at a point where, you know, they're fundamentally changing what they think they're offering. To me, this is just an atrocious business model. I think we should, I think we should check to see whether Steve Ballmer is sneaking back into the building. (laughs) Well, all I would say is having negotiated with Microsoft, both in the private sector and in the public sector, I got to say, this would give me cause, Stuart, to call you in your previous government job and say, hey, Stuart, could you come into this meeting with me while we have a, a cup of coffee with these guys and explain you know, why I brought a machete into the room? Yeah. No, it, 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 is, it, it, does, it does look as though they're basically profiteering off of the discovery really arising out of solar winds that it's really important to have good logs. Uh, yeah. And it'll look, Microsoft had an easy decade up to now because lots of other people were in the bullseye. But they have, they've gotten, I think, a little bit um, lazy about security. Their security is not as good as it once was and the number of patches that they're releasing shows that. And I think they've gotten used to the idea that they can chisel on their what amounts to little local monopolies and they won't get in trouble because there are other bigger monopolies that everybody's mad about. I don't think that's going to last for them. I couldn't agree more. And I think they're opening themselves up to a really bad counterpunch because if it turns out that even after spending 30 or $40 million a year per agency on the low end, you know, you're just going to have to pay a couple extra million dollars just to look at your log files. I, I can't see a bunch of other tech players coming in and, you know, really, really offering something that's far better anyway at a much better price. I called this the upcharge. Yeah. Um, in that article. Yes. Special rate for good customers. But at least they're taking their monopoly profits in money. Google is, I, I love this, two words, motherboards and landlords. What do they have in common? Anybody want to guess? They are... Words you can't use at Google. In fact, those, those are words that Google Docs is increasingly going to make it hard for you to use if you're using Google Docs. They have added an inclusiveness warning feature to Google Docs that says, you don't really want to say that, do you? Because you know, people are going to think you're a racist or a sexist or something. Motherboards, no, no. In fact, there's a, a Google employee uh, anonymously confirmed that You can't at Google call anything a motherboard because the software rejects it. It has to be mainboard, which is, you know, not sexist. And Landlords gets a warning too. I'm not sure quite, I guess 
because otherwise you could be a landlady, and so it has an inherent sexual genderization. But uh, it's peculiar. Uh, they are actually going to start imposing political correctness on individuals as they form their thoughts and send emails, not because people are dying for this feature, but because Google's already bought into it uh, for their own employees and they think that their values should be shared by the rest of the world and they're going to take their uh, um, competitive position and the fact that they're offering these products, not free, but in many cases free. Uh, so does this mean the next product offered by the Truth Social Crowd will be a word processor? Yes, I think that's probably right. Uh, uh, well, luckily, it'll be, it'll take a while before uh, uh, LibreOffice goes to, in this direction. That's always been my writing program of choice. But there is not the slightest sense of perspective in Silicon Valley. I noticed that Twitter has now said, we're going to ban climate change ads that don't conform to the intergovernmental science consensus. This is basically saying you can't say anything about climate change that governments around the world, including the Chinese government and their scientists, haven't approved. Uh, it's just nuts. And, and only people who have no sense of perspective about the possibility that they might be wrong, notwithstanding uh, all the mistakes but, they made on well, uh, COVID. And, but Stuart, Elon's going to fix that. Yeah. I mean, it broke like as soon as we started recording that, you know, Elon just bought Twitter. So he's going to totally fix all of this. It's going to be Yes. Great. He's got the money and they are apparently under pressure to negotiate the price a little higher and, and take the deal. Yeah. I don't think he's going to fix it, but I have always said there's room in this market for a Rupert Murdoch type figure. And Elon, for all of his trolling, is remarkably good at working governments. He knows how to make that work. And I think that uh, being known as the more the most Republican-friendly social media uh, mogul will be really good for him in the next administration and maybe even the next Congress. So yeah, it, it may be that it's worth it to him to, to do this as long as he's using mostly other people's money. All right. Here's one where I, I actually will stick up for Silicon Valley. Uh, there was a Wall Street Journal article saying that Sheryl Sandberg of uh, Meta had pressured the Daily Mail into dropping a story that made her boyfriend of the time look bad because he had apparently been the subject of an order keeping him away from his old girlfriend. And the deeper you read the story, the less there was there. It does not appear that they were abusing or at least threatening to abuse her control of Facebook to hurt uh, mainstream media. So I thought that story was over the top. And then as a palate cleanser, I read uh, Barack Obama's keynote address about his deep thoughts about uh, Silicon Valley and content moderation. And it was, you know, uh, it was a Barack Obama story, well-written, a certain amount of humor, a lot of Barack Obama talking about Barack Obama, not a lot of deep thoughts. Maybe you know, others saw something in there. It sort of reminded me of his administration. It was very friendly to Silicon Valley, as friendly as you could be in the current, but he said a little bit of regulation is a good idea. Well, I mean, the thing that struck me about it is it was the most administration sounding thing he said since he left office, really, in a lot yeah. of ways. And yeah. 
I'm sure the renegotiation of his burgeoning media empire's uh, fee structure from Netflix to wherever it's going or Apple or whatever. I lost track of that, but that's I'm sure the ongoing negotiation for that had nothing to do with it. Well, that's right. He now appreciates the power of platforms, I guess. (laughs) If they say, you know, we don't really want your podcast, it's a big deal. (laughs) Exactly. All right. This seems like a big deal, and yet it, it does, it's not getting coverage that I sort of expected, Jamil, which is that the prime minister's office in the UK is now reputed to have been the subject of an NSO Pegasus spyware attack, uh, was loosely blamed on the United Arab Emirates. That's pretty significant for a tool that's developed in what we think of as the West is being used against another Western government. Well, look, obviously, it's a concern. We've seen lots of concerns about NSO Group, the Israeli company that's developed the Pegasus spyware for a while. They ended up on the entities list, and so they're unable to buy U.S.-created capabilities or license them. So NSO is already facing trouble. They, you know, were seen as problematic when it came out that not only had they had they um, had they helped the Emiratis, but they had helped the Saudis. And there were some claims that perhaps some NSO-related surveillance was at the heart of the killing of the Washington Post reporter back in the Saudi embassy in Turkey. And so NSA, and, 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 and there were some claims that, and that from the Citizen Lab out of University of Toronto, that in fact, his device and maybe other Saudi national devices that have been traced using NSO group spyware. So this has been an issue for a while. You're right that this is perhaps a step change, but of course, it's the use of a capability provided by a private company to a, you know, not Nominally, a U.S. allied government, not even nominally an allied U.S. government, the Emirates, and now them using it. Now, look, let's be honest, Stuart. I mean, as we all know, friends listen to other people's messages. They read each other's mail. That's it. We've always done that, right? There, yes, there may be some, you know, agreements between certain nation states to not do that. But just because we're allies doesn't mean we don't listen to them and they don't listen to us. Certainly, some of our closest allies are some of our biggest adversaries when it comes to uh, surveillance against the United States. So, you know, maybe interesting, but particularly troubling, not in my book. Okay. So what did you think of the Ronan Farrow article for The New Yorker, which is a long discussion of ways in which these kinds of tools, phone hacking tools, have been used by repressive governments? I've got a view on that, but I'd like to hear yours. Yeah, I mean, look, you know, this is one in a series of articles that we've seen about the use of NSO group spyware, but also spyware more generally and uh, surveillance capabilities. And certainly repressive governments use uh, surveillance capabilities in ways that are hugely problematic. We need only look at what China does with WeChat and the like uh, to see how this can really play out poorly for domestic audiences and for international audiences. Uh, pardon me. We saw the, the Trump administration's concerns about TikTok when it came to uh, the Chinese government's uh, capabilities uh, with respect to that platform. Now, people say, well, look at the U.S. The U.S. government, you know, issues surveillance orders against domestic providers all the time. So clearly it's the same thing as when the Chinese government abuses WeChat or a repressive government uses NSO group. But of course, what that elides is the clear difference between our system and the Chinese system, for example. The Chinese system is just the Communist Party. It's their judges. It's their decisions. There are no judges, in fact. It's just government orders. And in fact, it's government orders to companies that are already in the government's pocket because of all the reasons we've talked about, right? In the U.S., of course, we have the government, which then seeks orders from independent third-party magistrates who are appointed on life terms, It's particularly to isolate them from politics, right? And yes, we have debates in this country about how political our judiciary is or the like, but we all understand that our judiciary is independent in a way that fundamentally China's and other governments aren't, other repressive governments aren't. 
And this idea somehow that it's the same thing when they do surveillance and we do surveillance, it's not the same thing. And just because the NSO group is, is technology being used by repressive governments doesn't necessarily mean NSO, NSO group is the problem. They may be the problem, and you, the U.S. government clearly thinks they are. But at the end of the day, this is about repressive regimes using their repressive capabilities. And if they didn't buy it from NSO, they'd build it themselves. Yeah, I, I my, my view on that is I expected more from Ronan Farrow and the New Yorker. It was an OK article, but I, I didn't learn a lot and I expected to learn more. The story about North Korea and their hacking army was a little better. Uh, yeah. Sultan, I don't know if you agree. Yeah, I mean, it was probably one of the more comprehensive articles about this that was fairly up to date that had some actual, you know, first party discussions across all the major things. I, I, I am now at a point, though, when I hear people talk about the Bangladesh incident, I kind of roll my eyes because that was, you know, a, kind of a different animal. The thing, though, that I was really surprised in the article, which was excellent, was that how little they pushed on the fact that there are a decent number of North Korean and North Korean proxies working outside of North Korea. And they kind of kind of hand waved and said, oh, well, they're using VPNs. Well, no, we know there are North Koreans in the People's Republic of China doing this work. Right. And, and, and Southeast Asia and maybe yeah. even a Africa. I yeah. mean, it's, it, they hinted at South America, which I think, you know, in different forms, we've all seen or heard discussions around that. But it, it doesn't it doesn't draw that connection to the point that this is a, a global criminal enterprise backed by one nation state with a lot of support from a second nation state. Yeah. And I feel like that's the story that that's the thing that, that this story didn't kind of call out is the fact that we've got these guys running around all over doing all this stuff on a daily basis. And it's a great survey, but there have been three years of other data that they could add to this story. Yeah. Years ago, when I was trying to stretch people's ideas of how to respond to cyber attacks, one of the things I said is, we ought to land SOCOM forces on the roof of the hotel they're in, in uh, Southeast Asia or Africa or Latin America, and bust everybody, bring them back to the U.S. and give them jobs. I, <laughs> <laughs> Wait, Operation Paperclip 2.0? Is that what yeah, exactly. I, and that will lead the, the North Koreans to be much more cautious about going elsewhere to run these operations oh, and, right. and maybe even make the Chinese a little enthusiastic about having them do it from uh, just across the river in China. Yeah. Well, I mean, the the way I would think about it is if you removed the cyber component of this discussion and took us back 140 years and you said 130 years and said, OK, Teddy Roosevelt, what are you doing when you're running the predecessor to the U.S. Navy and you see pirates doing stuff against American interests? What did he do? Well, he went over, hunted him down and dragged him back into an appropriate court. Right. I don't understand why that's not a bigger discussion. Yeah, I, I, I think we now that we know they're not in North Korea, we should be much more creative about it. And I certainly hope that we are being uh, that. But frankly, if that didn't happen in the Trump administration, it's probably not going to happen in the Biden administration. All right. Uh, and, and for those who can't see us right now, you just saw three sets of heads nodding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right, let's do a few quick hits and close close up. eBay, if you remember, eBay got mad at some little newsletter and somebody said, will no one rid me of this meddlesome newsletter? And the security folks started doing weird things to harass them, uh, sending them, you know, uh, I forget, dead bugs in the mail and uh, pig mask, bloody pig masks and the like. Uh, and then when they realized that law enforcement and internal security was investigating them, 
A lot of them lied, and they're all slowly going to trial or pleading guilty to pretty significant crimes, even though what they did was just one step up. It's more obnoxious than ordinary criminal mischief, but it, it, by itself, if they just said, yeah, I did it, they would have gotten fired and nothing worse. Uh, now they're all going to uh, serve jail terms. It's just a shame. That, that's an inevitable outcome with only one person left to go to trial, and we'll see if they do go to trial. Good news is Jamil Okta, which got just slammed around for about a week and a half by cybersecurity Twitter, probably shouldn't have been. Well, you know, it turns out that the breach only happened on one day. This is a breach of one of their systems. It only only affected two customers and only lasted 25 minutes, at least with this laptop and this engineer at the support firm that they had. The problem, of course, is that in theory, had the person known what they were doing, right, had the, had the, had the, had the actor been more aggressive, had they had longer access, the access to the super user application on this laptop gave them would have been hugely problematic for Okta. So yes, they got lucky. It didn't work. It didn't work out for this particular attacker. But the threat posed by the exposure they had is still hugely problematic and obviously concerning. They have, they have owned up to it. To be fair, it took them a little while to get there. It took them a couple of months before they reported it. They've admitted that they didn't handle this in the best possible way. And so you know they're on. I think the right path. Okta, of course, being at core a security enabling capability that a lot of banks and many other entities use in order to authenticate users into their systems. So it, you know, egg on their face to be sure. A smaller breach than had previously been thought. Less problematic, but. Um, still concerning that they allow this kind of access. And, and they've, they've taken ownership of that responsibility for it. So, you know, uh, more to come. Not the last time you'll hear about a security firm being an access point for an attack, but an unfortunate one for them. Better than previously thought that. Okay, so I'm going to say something nice about uh, Microsoft. They are giving us a lot of really good Computer Fraud and Abuse Act uh, law because they are insisting on such unreasonable positions in court that they keep losing. LinkedIn has been fighting with HiQ Labs for years, trying to prevent them from scraping what amounts to public data from LinkedIn and then using it to compete with LinkedIn. And the Ninth Circuit just handed down an opinion. It's still not a, a final judgment, but it's a, a judgment in connection with a possible injunction, saying the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act basically is only violated if you evade something other than words. If you get past a password requirement or some other technical requirement, then you're hacking and you're violating Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. You're engaged in unauthorized access. Uh, but if LinkedIn simply sends you a letter that says, if you do that again, it's unauthorized. I'm telling you right now, stop doing that. That's just words. And what you're doing may be a violation of some business tort law, but it is not a violation of the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, which is the right answer. And good news that LinkedIn keeps fighting these things until the last open question is resolved against them. There is, I don't know how much to uh, say about this, but I will simply alert listeners, there is something called the Global Cross-Border Privacy Initiative, which looks like all the people who wish the European Union wasn't enforcing GDPR and forcing their companies to dance to Europe's tune, all getting together and say, we've got some rules that we think should apply to privacy. State, the State Department, the Commerce Department have been a big part of negotiating that. I don't know that that really stops anything. 
to tell the truth. It does not take away the leverage that GDPR gives the EU. So it may be a sort of a poor second cousin to GDPR pretty much permanently. And Jamil, Digital Silk Road is still making headlines because there's still a lot of money floating around. Ross Obrecht is in jail serving a life sentence. And yet he's still apparently in control of a very substantial Bitcoin resources and the U.S. government is doing deals with him. Well, so apparently, you know, he was required to pay as part of his life sentence $183 million in restitution to the U.S. government. And so the U.S. government has now decided that there are about $3 billion in Bitcoin that were stolen from Silk Road by another hacker. That hacker has, who's not named in, in the relevant proceedings, referred to as individual X. His identity is known to the government. He was involved in a transaction. He was able to hack in, obtain this Bitcoin. And uh, Ulbricht, Ulbricht actually apparently knows who this uh, individual is as well and threatened him for the return of the currency. Ultimately, uh, he did not return it, but kept it and held on to it. Now he has, or he or she, has signed a consent agreement to forfeit this $3 billion to the U.S. government. And the U.S. government, out of the generosity of its soul, paid off Ulbricht's $183 million restitution uh, with the proceeds of this. Now, of course, you might wonder to yourself, why would they do that? Well, I wonder how they figured out who Individual X was. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that will buy a lot of snacks in the uh, commissary, too. Uh, uh, so, yeah, I, I think you're right. He's in a position where he has to make very substantial concessions just to, to have a decent uh, life in, in prison or maybe the prospect of parole at some point. This will be clearly part of his probation requests from here on out. And so it, it was creative and it seems to me the right thing for the U.S. government to do to say, fine, you have a claim to this money and you have a claim to all of it, but if you give up your claim to it, we'll forgive your $183 million. There you go. All right. Uh, thanks. This was a terrific uh, uh, conversation. And Megan, Jamil, Sultan, we're looking forward to having you back. For the audience, if you know somebody who might want to intern for the CyberLaw podcast and do uh, sound editing, sound production, substantive research, uh, part-time, but paid, just send a message with a CV or a bio or some other indication of background to cyberlawpodcast at stepto.com. You can also send comments, uh, hurl abuse, uh, uh, at the same address. We'll, we'll read everything, I'm sorry to say, now that we're looking for something that we really want to see. Uh, I want to thank Weissman Sound Design for our music. This has been episode 404 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Mm-hmm.